Good morning, City Life. Good morning, church, family, City Lifers, friends, visitors, first-time guests, people tuning in to a random Christmas sermon. We're so happy that you're here. So happy that today is our last sermon before Christmas. Uh, and Christmas is my favorite holiday, which is going to surprise my family because I have not always been that way. They call me the Grinch. Uh, and it's been well-deserved so far, but Christmas is perfect in every day, every way, what we celebrate, what we're coming for, the Christmas story. And so it is the story that we were all made to talk and preach through. And so I am so happy that you are here on our fourth Advent week, the week where we are preparing ourselves the final stretch before Christmas. And so I pray that this Advent season has been refreshing for you and that many of us in our church have never been in any rhythm of Advent getting ourselves ready. Normally it's just a hectic time and we're, it's like a finish line to Christmas and get there. But I pray that in this unique year we have a unique Advent season actually preparing ourselves for Christmas to receive our Savior, to receive the baby Jesus, to receive God's perfect plan for us. And so in this year, we've turned to Malachi, and we said Malachi makes sense of us. Malachi is a book. Malachi means my messenger, and so it's a book. And at the heart of this book, this fight between Israel and God, well, God's not really fighting, but he's, not, he's standing his ground. But it's this, at the center of it, at the heart of it, is God saying, I'm going to be sending a messenger to a people who were tired, beaten down, to a people who had given up, who, to a people whose hearts were far from God, even though they kept some of the practices, even though they didn't do them well, and that was a major obstacle. God, God is teaching His people. He is not letting go of His people, but that He is going to, to bring a tired people, a messenger, a savior. And so all of the things that we've been preaching about in the last weeks, I, I hope that you remember it, that you've used it to prepare yourself emotionally, spiritually, that you've been processing, thinking through, doing work, and not just stumbling on Christmas and then trying to make it mean something, but that you do the work ahead of time to be able to celebrate that our Messiah came and how humbly and meek he came, how much clothed and power this little baby was. And so here today, what I'm here to tell us is that Christmas is the perfect embodiment of God's power and humility all wrapped up in Jesus. I'll say that again, that Christmas is the embodiment, the perfect harmony of his power, of God's power and God's humility on display. It's the perfect embodiment of God's balance between power and his humility. In the birth of Christ, we see on display the fact that our God is the almighty God and yet he is all perfectly humble. All able and all loving, all knowing and all understanding, all power, all of the ability to do whatever he chooses to do, and yet alongside with that, all humility, all compassion, all love, even all righteous pity, for us in creation. And so let's pray as we dive into this this morning for our Christmas 2020 message. 
about how we might become able to see the birth of Jesus as God's mighty act of power and his unfathomable act of humility and love towards us. We're going to be in Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. But before we even dive into the word, let's pray to enter into it with a right mindset, in unity, in love, and allow the Holy Spirit to do something in us. We have five, five more days until Christmas. Five more days to allow Him to prepare us. If you haven't yet, if you haven't taken the time, we have five days to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us what Christmas means. To let this unique year do something unique for our celebration of Christmas. So let's pray. Please pray with me. Lord, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for your might and your love. We thank you that you find a balance, that you love us, that you come after us, that Christmas is all about your power and your humility on display for us and the world to see. Lord, I pray that this year's Christmas means something new in our lives, in our hearts, in our, in our journey with you and one another. Lord, uh, allow this word today to breathe new life, new energy, new rest, new presence into our life. And, and over the course of these days before Christmas, Lord, prepare us. Do a mighty work in us. Even surprise us, Lord. Surprise us as much as you do in the story that you tell. Lord, we love you. We give you all worship, all honor. Uh, speak to us anew today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read our word for today. Reading out of Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And God's word says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I love the story that God tells here. I love in the way that he inspired Luke to do. Luke starts off his book saying, you know what, Theophilus, I studied this. I gave a lot of time and energy to understanding this, interviewing eyewitnesses. And he starts telling this story about John the Baptist foretelling of his birth. And we're like, okay, we don't know why we're there. But in this, we talked about it last week, that, this, that John the Baptist would be like Elijah, right? God uh, continuing the telling of his story. But really, he, he talks about, he, he links Zechariah and Elizabeth Back to what God was doing in Abraham and Sarah, saying, I'm going to do something to that level. Where this story began, where this family and nation began, I'm doing this again. These people who are in old age, 
who can't have a kid from their own, I'm going to do something remarkable, setting up the expectation that God's story is going to take another big loop. And then Mary sings this song, the angel goes to Mary, Mary goes to Elizabeth, she sings this song, Zechariah's prophecy, and then we get here to Jesus' birth, into the account here. And I just want us to be able to feel the power, the umph of this story. Last week, Shemoy in the background was making fun of me for patting my chest so much, but this is this story, Christmas story, needs to be in our gut. It needs to come out, and we need to have a, a reaction to the story that God was doing here and the perfectly how he told his story. And so let's start with power. Let's talk about how the birth of Jesus is God's uttermost display of his power. In order to understand how this story is God showing and displaying his power for the entire world to see, we have to turn to the Old Testament and realize that we have a logistical problem here. See, in Micah chapter 5, verses 2, it talks about uh, this messenger in the same way that Malachi talks about the coming messenger, how Malachi got this glimpse of the one who was coming. Micah did as well, and, and in Micah's glimpse, he, he foresaw probably not even really understanding what he was foreseeing, but he foresaw that this coming messenger, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And so right off the bat, we are faced with a logistical problem, but I want to tell you that it is, was most likely the easiest, simplest logistical problem that God faced in all of Scripture. You see, we have this understanding that the Messiah needed to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary, the woman that he has chosen, Joseph, the, the father or the husband that he has chosen for Mary, they are in a town called Nazareth, which is up in the north, in the region of Galilee. And this is the simplest logistical issue God has faced in all of Scripture. I googled it for, to have an understanding, and the, di the distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem is, 90, is a little under 96 miles. 96 miles of a logistical problem. And so God could have handled this in any simple way that he, he would have chosen to. Joseph could have very easily got a transfer of his job and a paid uh, travel expense. It's like, oh, you know, we got this really great job for you here. Go back to your lineage. Go back to your family's hometown. You are of the line of David. And so go just go back to Bethlehem. We have this nice job for you, 401k health insurance, you're all good. We know that you have a pregnant wife, right? Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll treat you well. Also, Joseph could have had a sick relative. He could have just gotten a promotion at his job. He could have just gone home sick. He could have done any way. They just could have decided. It could have even been a green card situation for all of us immigrants in this church. We're so aware of this. I, I don't know if this remains today, but when, I, when my family had the green card, you could be out of the country for 364 days but if you lapsed, if you went the 365th day, you lost your green card if you were gone for a whole year. And so I knew a slew of people who would come here for a week or two, a year, go back home just to renew their green card. It could, God could have done it that way with Joseph. He could have come up with any solution. This is the easiest logistical problem. But because in Jesus' birth, God was demonstrating his power. His, this, his might over every kingdom, every force, over humanity, over our organization of things. Since God was showing us how powerful he was, 
balancing power and humility in Jesus' birth. This is what God does. A big, big solution to a rather small problem. In verse 1 it says this, And in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Instead of simply bringing Joseph and Mary home, instead of bringing him, them to a, the town that was prophesied, God said this, you know what, my power is going to be displayed in that I'm going to go to the most powerful person in the world, a person who does not belong to me, a person whose empire is not pleasing to me or loving towards me or accepting towards me, the, the, the empire that will kill my son, and I'm going to move in his heart. I'm going to use this evil empire. I'm going to use this king who calls himself a god, who considers himself to be a deity. And I'm going to get him to move the entire world according to my plan. See, over taxes, over something so, so routine and mundane and boring, over taxes to be registered, God moved his family, his holy family, to the right town. Demonstrating to us that, you know what, there's nothing outside of, the, of God's reach in our lives. There is nothing that can stand in the way of his plan. There is no force or empire, nation, country, organization, force, not human, not spiritual, that can stand up when God moves, when he stands up to move, the whole world listens. And we know that that's a hyperbole, right? That the whole world moved. The Roman Empire was not the whole world, but it was their whole world. And so God has the power and the display of his power is to get this evil empire to do his bidding. And so soapbox moment for a second, just really quick for all of the false prophets uh, who are speaking today, linking God to nationalism who don't understand that God does what he wants, when he was, with, with who he wants, how in Israel's story he used evil empires all the time, not calling America an evil empire, but say that all of these big things are not outside of his control. God moves history the way that he deems it to be. And so God is showing us here that he, every part of life, you know, he can, he can control. To move uh, this family 96 miles, he moved the entire world to play a role and a story in the birth of Christ. That unknowingly Caesar started a chain reaction that brought his son to be born in the play, exact place that he wanted him to be born. But... I love this display of power. I love how, Jesus, how God says, you know, all of this is fair game for me to use. Even Caesar, who thinks that he's all that, I'm going to use him too. But we also have to talk about how Christmas is the embodiment of his humility. I love how God starts his story with his power, saying that whenever he's moving, whenever he calls humanity creation to move, it moves even if it's unknowing. But how in, in the mix of all this, God's love, compassion, humility shines out in such a backwards way from what we would expect it to. So we need to talk about God's humility. We need to talk about a couple of elements here that are just so important for us to grasp. The betrothed Mary, that there was no room for him, the manger, and the shepherds. 
Let's start with the betrothed Mary. Here, here we're told that uh, in verse five, four and five, that David had to go. Uh, David Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem, David's city. You know, linking that to the messianic promises are all around David, but that he had a betrothed wife. And so, from the very beginning of Jesus' story, we see this important thing that God works His story, that God chose to bring His Son in all the lowliest and all the dirtiest places. That God told His story through the perspective of the lowest people. That God brought His story, how He brought His Son, His, divinely, His divine Son, the one who created everything by just speaking it into being, how He came in this world, not in a palace, but in a place of filth. And so let's start with Mary. First, the betrothed Mary, that even his mother, who was not married, she was just betrothed in the engagement period. How from day one, Jesus, people would look at Jesus and say, how could he be king because he's the son of, a, he's a bastard. And yet God chose that because he's speaking to all of us who are low, who don't fit in, who are outcasts, who don't have privilege showing us that God works in mysterious ways and all the backwards ways that make no sense to us. And then let's go to the end here when it says that there was no place for them in the inn. I preached about this last year. It's one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story. In that the room for him in the inn, that's not a good way of culturally thinking about this. No good Israelite would have rejected a family, let alone a pregnant family, but this idea was not that there were like this hotel, that there was no room for them, but how there was no room in any of the houses because of this registration, because it was so crowded, because everyone came back to this little town. In Micah, it talks about how Bethlehem is so little, how everyone had to come back to this little town, and there was no room for them in the upper room. You see, homes were built on two floors. The top room is the upper room, right? We, 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 there's this worship group called the upper room. We make theology about this upper room. Passover was taken in this upper room. It's this place of communion and intimacy. Only generally guests, invited guests or families stayed in this upper room. And so there was no room for Jesus. No self-respecting Israelite would have turned them down. But how the idea here is that there was no room for Jesus where all the people say so and stay. So instead, Jesus had to be born downstairs where the animals stayed. In the gross part of the house, in the smelly part of the house, in the house where there would have been animal droppings, where they would have been right up close to all the animals and everything that's disgusting about them. For, for the people here who come from other countries and aren't used to the idea of dogs being inside uh, pets, is, is that idea. They would, they would read this and say, oh my gosh, Jesus was born in the most gross place. And last year we talked about how only the special or sacrificial animals were born there. And so from the first moment of Jesus' life, the first breath he ever took, Jesus was preparing his people to see that he came here to die for us, to be the sacrifice. And then also how he was put in the manger. We've romanticized this manger. I've seen a manger in Israel and it is not comfortable. It's this hollowed out stone with a dip in the middle. And how it was a place where the animals were fed and so their, their backwash was in there. 
their food went in there. It was disgusting. There was nothing nice. There's nothing sexy about the about placing a baby in a manger. Pointing us that God is going to stoop. He stoops so low to come and reach us. That God would leave His kingdom, join humanity and and His creation, let it dirty Him, let it touch Him, and along the whole way, it would never change His His perfectness or His wholeness. It would never change His mission. But that He came here, even from the first moment, His first breath, as as also a person, and that it would be in the dirt in the mire because he so loved us and let's talk about the shepherds too because we didn't read to the shepherd but right after this god wants people to know about who his about that his son had come and who he was and instead of sending he so he sends a choir of angels and instead of sending them to a roman concert hall or instead of sending him to king herod or instead of sending him to important people i know that in other accounts it talks about the three wise men but in this account instead of sending god's heavenly choir to the right people the important people he sends them to a group of shepherds and we tend to romanticize this as well you know christ called himself the good shepherd and and that should make our hearts happy all the time he is the good and perfect shepherd, but shepherds were the lowest in the caste. You were a shepherd because you could almost do nothing else. There's nothing romantic, there's nothing nice. Being able to be out and gazing at the stars, we might romanticize that and think that that's a cool thing, but there was nothing good about shepherds. They were the lowest of the low in their society. They could do almost nothing else. And yet God saw that he always wanted to reach, that his kingdom started with the lowliest. With everyone who knows that we are not okay, that all of this isn't okay, that we need a savior, we need a Messiah, we need God to be who he says he is and send a good and holy king. So God sends his heavenly angels to go sing for a couple of dirty, gross, smelly shepherds. And so they go and they're honored their king. They go and they're amazed at what God is doing, at the backwards nature of how his kingdom is coming to our earth. There's, there's one more image here that I, I just I have new appreciation for this year. So we have to talk about the swaddling cloth. I have a new gained appreciation for what God is telling us in this story here. If you blink, you'll miss it. It's just, it's just it seems like it's thrown in the story there. I see a lot of people have written books and set up theology around how these swaddling cloths were also a foreshadow and that these are the same cloths used to bury people. And the Greek words that are used here aren't the same as when we do talk about ceremonial clothing, um, sorry, swaddling cloths. And so that it might be an illusion there, but I, I prefer this translate. I prefer this understanding. That swaddling cloth in their day was a sign of motherly love. And this is what I think God is telling us. See, he's telling us that God's plan is so powerful, that God's will is so strong, that in the birth of Jesus, his power, excuse me, is being on full display while also his love and humility and his meekness and his pity 
good righteous pity is going so down low to reach us. But the thing that links them together is the swaddling cloth. The fact that God put his plan, his future, himself, his firstborn son into the hands of men. Mary, a, mo a woman, but humanity. That God's plan is so strong and powerful that he can put Christ in our hands and that his plan wouldn't be deterred. But also that his love shines through and that he's saying, you know what, humanity, you, you get to play a role in my plan. That this whole thing that God's been doing hasn't been, you stay back, just go to the sidelines, I'm going to do everything and just watch. But no, but over and over and over again, God says, you have a role to play in my story. Mary, you have to raise my son. I could have sent him as an adult, as a teenager. I could have done it any single way I wanted to, but God chose in his wisdom, in his power, in his love to send him as a baby. Put God's plan in our hands to take care of him or to break him, to love him or to reject him. And so over and over and over again, we, we are told this story that God says, I want you and my plan. You have a role to play in my plan. That I'm not doing this just on my own. I could snap my fingers and everything will be done right now. But this plan here involves you. And so I want you to love me because I love you and I'm coming after you. And guess what? I can move Caesar. I can move anything. So trust me, I'm big enough. I'm strong enough. Caesar thought he was just getting his money right. But actually he was playing. He was doing what I told him to. And so the swaddling costs represent that you and I, we play a role in the story that Jesus, even in leaving, he said that he wants us to carry out and, and baptize people in his name. It's a reminder, like we talked about last week, that we're on mission for him. That we get to play a role in this divine plan is incredible. It's one that is too great even for us to imagine. Mary, when she sings the song here back in Luke 1, it's just a song of utter amazement that God would look at us and say, I want you here too. And so this Christmas, the swaddling cloth is a reminder that we are on this mission with the Lord. And so let's conclude all of this. Let's conclude this Christmas season talking about the two questions that we raised in week one of our Advent. In the first week of our Advent series, when we turn to Malachi, when Malachi starts to talk about this messenger who's coming, who will be God himself and he'll restore our, our tithes, our offerings to him, who will make things right, who will destroy evil, that there will be no root or semblance of evil anymore, that when this guy, when this messenger comes, every, every source of evil is going to be dried up, killed, eradicated. He has two questions of us back in Malachi chapter 3. The first one being, who can endure the day of his coming? The second one, who can stand when he appears? And this is what Luke tells us about Jesus' first coming. Who can, who can endure the day? Those who are low, humble, and meek. Those who let God tell his story. Those who say, who look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the embodiment, you are the Savior, you are the embodiment of everything we've, saw, we've known our God to be. 
though everyone who knows they need Christ and not the universe or not karma or not goodwill, not being a good person, but a savior, a man named Jesus who is the Lord. And then the second, who can stand? The answer to this one is no one. Because everyone that night who came into contact with Jesus marveled and wondered and bowed to the king. Bowed that God would so beautifully bring his salvation in the form of a baby that we could hold and love and take care of and grow with, become familiar with, laugh, become friends with, and then see ultimately that he is the one we've been waiting for. That God in his powerful and humble plan gave us this little baby to take care of and then to follow and then to give our lives to is incredible. The shepherds, when they came, bowed at Jesus, worshiped him, marveled at what God was doing. His parents, tired from travel, tired from the delivery, tired from everything, just marveling at this baby boy. But because we also know that this, this boy grew up to be a man, grew up to go to the cross and die for us, then he came back and told us that he would come again. We need to also talk about his second coming that Malachi tells us to think about over and over again. And so those two questions remain for Jesus' second coming. Who can endure that day? And Malachi tells us that it's everyone who fears the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls upon Jesus and believes that he is this messenger, this will be a good day when King Jesus comes back, not baby lowly Jesus, but King Jesus comes back, that it'll be a great day, a, great, a day of great celebration, but for many a day of judgment, a day of death and suffering. And so Christmas, allow this Christmas to be one that reminds us that we love this Savior who came so humbly and powerfully, but that he tells us to bring other people to recognize that he is this Lord that all of creation is waiting for. And then in that day when he comes again, the other question, who can stand? And it's again, no one. Because those who love him and know him will gladly bow our knees to him. But everyone who's rejected him, who's spat in his face, who's participated in his killing, their knees will also bend but not from submission, but from being made to bend. And so church, let's balance all of these things together like God did so perfectly in how he made this story happen. About how in Jesus' birth, in Christmas, is about God showing us his power and his love and humility towards us. He could have done this any other way and it would have been just as good, but yet God chose this way because it's a perfect story. It's a story that we know that we need and would never have written ourselves. And so we have a few more days to prepare ourselves for this day, a few more days to allow this Christmas to do something new in us. After a year of being really tired, of being beaten down, of losing a lot, of saying no to ourselves a lot, to allow this Christmas to show us God's power, that he can do anything when he stands up to move, 
And so we need to be seeing what he's doing as a church and as individuals in this season and adapting to what he's doing. But that also that his unfathomable, never-ending love is out there at all times, calling all of us towards repentance. And so church, here are some prompt questions as we jump on this MC call, as a, a, a City Life call, so that we can reflect on Christmas together this year. Prompt question number one. How do you see God's perfect display of power in Jesus' birth? How would you put it into words? What does this story show to you about God's unstoppable power? Question two. How do you see God's perfect display of humility in Jesus' birth? How would you put it into your own words? How would you tell a friend? How would you shape and frame this to someone who doesn't know Christ yet about how in Jesus Christ's love and humility came to us? Prompt question number three. How do you need to prepare in these last days before Christmas? What, what work do you need to do internally? Or what service towards someone else has God been putting on your heart? Or who maybe has God been telling you to tell someone about Christmas? We have a couple more days to prepare our hearts and our souls, our spirits, our emotions, everything about us to celebrate Jesus' coming, the birth of our Messiah, of our Lord. And so what do we need to do to prepare until that happens? Church, let's jump on this call. We love you so much. Can't wait for us to be together. But until we can do that, let's jump on these calls. Let's jump on the prayer calls that will still be happening this week, except for the Friday morning one. And let's continue to be a united, loving community for ourselves and to celebrate Christmas this year. Again, love you, and I'll see you on the call.